It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and I'm joined by Guardian business reporter and author Rob Davis. Rob, you are the author of a new book, Jackpot, How Gambling Conquered Britain, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, the chapter on gambling in football. But if you wouldn't mind first outlining your credentials as a writer and, more importantly, as a Spurs fan. Yeah, well, I guess I'll start with my credentials as a Spurs fan because... I can always speak from the heart on that. Um, I started supporting Spurs in about 1990 because my best friend did. Um, the year after that, we won the FA Cup, obviously the team of Gascoigne and Lineker. Um, and I thought, oh, this is great. It's, um, it's only upside from here, really. Um, and then we all know what followed, pretty much the worst period in the history of the club to be a Spurs fan. Um, somehow I'm still here. Uh, got a season ticket about 10 years ago. Um, I've been through that that roller coaster ride, um, really. Um, as a as a writer and a, and a reporter, I've been a news reporter for about 10, 11 years, focusing on business. About five years ago, um, I wasn't on permanent staff at The Guardian. I was on a sort of part-time gig. And this job came up to be full-time energy correspondent, which I applied for um, and uh, got turned down. Um, and my boss at the time said, uh, well, you know, consolation prize, you can do the sins. So uh, tobacco, booze and gambling. Um, and with gambling, it was just like the moment I opened the lid of the, of the can of worms, if you like, um, it was there were just so many stories, so many horror stories and, and so much going on that I just couldn't quite believe. Um, and after about five years of writing about that, I thought, well, why don't I do a book? I mean, I've written enough uh, to fill a book, so I may as well write one. That uh, serves as a nice metaphor for the industry itself, to be honest. Um, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, well and truly. Um that's so that's really interesting that you kind of it was it was um landed upon you and then you sort of became an expert uh when when did you first start researching the gambling industry is this is this a recent thing for you um probably around it depends what you class as recent i mean i'm 38 years old so five years ago feels like yesterday <laughs> um but around about then 2015 ish um 
and that was just around the time that there were you know a lot of um mm. you know really tragic tales of addiction and even suicide that were coming to the fore and it was also around the time when there was a lot of debate about fixed odds betting terminals which i don't know if you remember those but they were these sort of uh like a slot machine that you got in a bookies um where you could put in very large sums of money 100 pounds every 20 seconds you could put into one of those if you wanted um and so there was a big political debate around that at the time i do remember it i remember it because um it was often um how to how to phrase it, it was framed it was the way it was framed was often quite classist i think that debate and so it became an interesting talking point um i mean that in itself we could probably have a whole podcast on but i'm, I'm intrigued about um specifically talking about gambling and football is this subject that's become a subject that's quite close to my heart um uh, so i've got some questions to put to you and these are these are questions that uh that bardi and nathan had a had a hand in as well so bardi wanted to ask you he said cigarettes and junk food are subject to advertising restrictions yet we have players who young children idolize running around with betting companies on their shirts and adverts constantly played during super sunday how do we break free from this I mean, that's a really big question. Mm. The only way to break that link, um, I think, is is through legislation, right? It's going to take the government to do it because football clubs are not going to do it themselves. If you put some money on the table, um, a football club is going to pick it up, pocket it, say thank you very much, and, and not really think about the ethical consequences, um, as we know all too well. I mean, that, that, you know, that's not to suggest that, that that gambling and football, that the link between them is is anything new. Right. When I think about when I was a kid, you had the football pools. Yeah. Which for some of your younger listeners was kind of, I don't know, kind of a football lottery, I guess. You filled in a number of matches that you thought were going to end in a score draw. And if you got them all right, you got a pretty substantial sum of money. And you could go down the bookies and you could bet on the outcome of a game. And later on, you could do that on the telephone. And in the early days of the Internet, you could do it there as well. Um, but the difference between that and where we are now is just night and day really um you know we're at a point now where you can bet on pretty much any football match anywhere in the world at any time of the day or night and you can bet on more or less any outcome um of any moment within that game um and look, we're, yeah i'm sure we can talk about that more but um the development of that the development of that sort of inextricable link between football and gambling has just been extraordinary and it's been very very rapid as well so you know, how do we break that link? I don't know. First of all, you have to assume that we want to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not the moral arbiter of how people live their lives or or, or how football um, is governed. But I think there is definitely a sense among some people that it's that it's gone too far. Um, and I think the only way anything's going to happen um, that, that that lessens that uh, relationship, that diminishes that relationship, uh, is through Parliament. And you know that that could be on the cards early next year. Interesting. I mean, we see it as a as a podcast, as a as a side project related to football. All the money in advertising comes from the gambling industry. We're we're approached sometimes by companies that are that are either gambling companies or similar, um, and they want to, they want to sponsor us. They want us to advertise their products. Very rarely, other companies from other industries approach us. It's it's just seems that the money is is solely from football betting. Uh, and that's the same, you know, with radio shows. There are radio shows that invite experts, industry experts on to give odds um, mid-show to encourage their listeners to to bet. They're so intrinsically linked now. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you if you listen to a game on Talk Sport, I mean, God knows why you would, but if you did, <laughs> the, the commentators are actually calling the odds during the game. Yeah. So it's got to that point where they're interrupting, you know, your actual enjoyment of the game of football to tell you about the odds because they're being incentivized to do so by these commercial relationships. Um, and, you know, things like podcasts and, you know, fan fan media and so on are an absolute gift to gambling companies because they're relatively inexpensive um, and they're really, really targeted. You know exactly who you're reaching. You've got metrics that tell you how many people are then going on to click on your website potentially. Um, so it's really, really targeted. Uh, it's much more efficient than just putting up a billboard or, or, or putting an advert on the TV or the radio. Absolutely. They, they, they often follow up their messaging with this uh, please gamble responsibly message. It feels like a token gesture completely from an outsider's perspective. But is there any evidence that that has any impact at all? Uh, no. Um, to, to to answer briefly, I mean, the, the the slogan that the industry has been using for a number of years, although um, I think they've ditched it recently, is when the fun stops, stop, which is pretty unwieldy um, as a phrase, I always think. But the thing that really strikes me about it is have you ever noticed when you see that printed in a bookie's window or on a TV advert, which word is printed the largest? It's not stop, right? It's fun. Um, and I always think that's just incredible. They're sort of allowed to get away with that because the mm -hmm. enduring image you come away with when you see that slogan is is fun, um, which, of course, you know, gambling can be fun for lots of people. But I think if you're going to put out a message that is about warning people about, you know, the dangers uh, of going too far, then that's probably not the word you want to be emphasising. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point you just made that that the gambling can be fun. I mean, I've I've had lots of fun gambling experiences over the years, either in casinos in Las Vegas or or in bookies with my mates, um, where we've you know gone for a day out at the pub to watch a series of football games, and between each match we've we've dashed to the pub to put a few bets on, and then we've we've had a laugh about it. Uh, but it's it's not always that way, and I'm sure in your um, your research you've come across some absolute horror stories of, of dreadful situations that people have been put into yeah absolutely i mean you know some of those uh, are in the book some of those i've written about in the guardian before but just to give you a flavor of it um since i finished the book one person i spoke to has contemplated suicide one person has attempted suicide and uh one person who i didn't actually speak to but i spoke to uh his wife um who was badly affected by his gambling, he he has committed, uh, killed himself. I sorry, I said committed suicide, and I shouldn't say that. They've taken their own lives. Um, so you know that gives you a sense of quite how how bad it can get. Um, and one of the issues around this is that for every person who has a gambling disorder, on average, there's about seven other people who are affected. So there's this idea that it's you know it's your own money, and the government shouldn't be telling you what to do, or other people shouldn't be telling you what to do with it. But if that's your mortgage uh, that you share with your partner, or you know, your child's university fund or potentially money that you've stolen, um, which is very common from a relative uh, or an employer, you know, then other people are affected by that. Um, and that money is going directly into the pockets uh, of, the, of the gambling companies and also into the pockets of your football club. Um, and one of the things that, and I can't say too much about this because um, I can't reveal uh, everything that's in the book, but there are a couple of things in there that I think some some fans will be quite shocked to find out their club's are engaged in, um, in terms of just how in bed they are with the gambling companies um, and uh, how symbiotic that relationship is between them. Because 
it's fundamentally exploitative. And we all know that clubs will exploit fans as and when they can. But I think there are occasions when football clubs have benefited financially uh, from people's misery. Um, and that's, I think that's not what most people want to see out of the game they love. That's, that's um, it's pretty shocking to hear it put like that. And I guess it must have been really shocking for you to sort of see it in that stark way. We all have suspicions, don't we, about the about whether football, how football clubs really care about us. But to sort of see it in black and white must be quite difficult. Um, do we know how many people have a gambling addiction in, in this country? I mean, that's one of the things I get into in the book. But there is an official way of measuring this. Um, it's a sort of a NHS survey or an NHS-affiliated survey, I mm. suppose you could, you could call it. And that estimates uh, something between 350 and 450,000 people, um, which sounds a lot, but it's quite a small percentage of the population. The thing is with with gambling, it's, um, you know, there are so many different types of products, right? There's online slot machines and there's football betting. And the rates of addiction are quite different depending on which product you're uh, you're spending your money on. Um, and the research isn't that good. So we don't know a great deal about this and exactly about which products um, are the most dangerous. I mean, take for instance in-play betting, right? That's the stuff that Ray Winston tells you to do, where you you know you bet on the next corner or the number of throw-ins or all this stuff that you basically have no hope of knowing the outcome of, right? There is no study that tells us what addiction rates on in-play betting are relative to say just betting on the outcome of a match. But in-play betting is actually you know the fastest growing, and I think by now the the the, the largest. Uh, activity in in sports betting in this country and yet we don't know really what it's doing to people Um, and one of the things that I've often found when I've talked to uh, gamblers or people who are disordered gamblers is the thing they want is rapidity and speed and they want to bet on one event and then another and then another and that's why slot machines are such an addictive product and that's why um, you know some type they have virtual horse races for instance in bookmakers and those can be problematic because you know, there's a race and then immediately there's another one. It's not even like a normal horse racing meet. And in play provides that kind of rush. It provides that kind of high octane, uh, quick churn that people want when they need another hit. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot to be worried about there. Um, and I've kind of lost my train of thought from what you're No, that's it's absolutely fair. I mean, no, yeah, the in play, you can see it with the in play, why it would be particularly dangerous because because either you're winning and therefore you've got more money to stake on the next bet and great there's an next bet coming up immediately or you're losing and you want to chase your losses so great there's another bet coming up immediately and perhaps i i'm i become even again maybe if i'm lucky yeah and these are all psychological weaknesses that gambling companies i say weaknesses that's probably a bit harsh these are psychological quirks of humans that gambling companies understand really really well mm-hmm. i'll give you an example of that one of the most popular bets that, that you'll see advertised in football is what's called the scorecast bet. Mm-hmm. And that's um, Spurs to win 3-1 and Harry Kane to get the first goal, right? And one of the reasons that gambling companies really want to push that type of bet is that there are multiple events happening. It's got to be Spurs have got to win. They've got to win by that scoreline. And Kane not only has to score, but he has to score the first goal. Now, when somebody uh, advertises that bet at you, in your head, you're thinking, yeah, that's pretty likely. I've seen that kind of event 100 times before. Kane to score first, Spurs to win 3-1. Maybe not at the moment, but let's say three years ago. Um, 
but actually we are incredibly bad at calculating multiple probabilities of calculating the likelihood of something happening when three or four things have to happen at once. So a gambling company can say, yeah, you can have 15 to one on that. And you think, wow, that's a, that's a really good rate. It's a really good return, really good odds. But actually they know um, that the odds are much, much, much longer than that. So they're always going to push that kind of bet at you rather than, you know, who's going to win or just who's going to score. I'd never considered that before. I mean, scorecasts always struck me as the kind of thing someone who doesn't know about gambling would do. Like, it's it's an entry-level bet, isn't it? It sounds fun. And also, normally, as you say, quite long odds, not long enough, but quite long to entice you in. Um, So, yeah, they're they're exploiting the fact that you don't know enough about the the art of gambling, essentially. But that's one reason why why they've gone so heavily after football, uh, the gambling industry, because millions upon millions of people love it um, Mm -hmm. and most of those people don't really know much about gambling so it's high turnover um, high volume relatively low numbers most people Um, you know most people don't bet huge amounts on football but it just means that you can uh, you know harness that lack of knowledge um, Mm -hmm. in large numbers uh, to do pretty well and it's you know it's by far the fastest by now it's the largest sports betting area by revenue like it overtook horse racing years ago now. wow okay um and and it's and it's growing extremely rapidly um because you know it, it can be a bit of fun to have a bet on a football match but i just think people need to go into that realizing what the consequences potentially are of that not just for themselves but also for the game and you know i think of times when you know one of the things that that's that's bothered me is i was sitting at um at white Hart lane tottenham Hotspur stadium whatever you want to call it i can't remember the game but it was quite tense and I think it was the second half and it was either, you know, there was either one goal in it or, um, or it was level. There was a guy in front of me who had his phone out and he was looking at his phone, wondering whether to cash out. And I don't know, like, call me a purist or sanctimonious or whatever, but I just wanted to knock the phone out of his hand. I was a bit like, are you here to watch a game? You know, I don't, I don't buy this idea that, that it's an enhancement, particularly not when you're watching the team you love, you love, because, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't like football, don't watch it. It just shows how insidious it's become and how insidious it is and how they have managed to sort of tap into our behaviour. I mean, so an example of how my behaviour's changed over lockdown, I, it's, 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 a, it's a Mourinho thing, actually. During Mourinho's tenure, I became so disinterested in watching Spurs that I would spend the majority of the game on my phone. I would just have my phone in my hand and I'd be scrolling Twitter or whatever rather than actually watching the game because there was nothing exciting to watch. I wasn't interested in watching the the defending we were doing on the edge of our own box. Yeah. Um, and now I'm finding it really hard to reverse that trend. I'm finding like even when we're sometimes playing some better football, okay, not so much yet, but I'm hoping there will be more to come. I can't, I'm finding it hard to not look at my phone. I'm having to place my phone over the other side of the room to avoid looking at it. And so it's really easy to sort of see how you form habits very quickly and it's very hard to break those habits. And that's exactly what the the industry, the gambling industry is trying to exploit. Yeah, I think so. Um, and um, you know, there was a really good documentary recently. Um, I think it was Channel 4 and it was presented by uh, Ruth Davidson, who used to be the leader of the Conservatives in Scotland. And she sort of spent the afternoon with these lads um, watching a game. And basically they couldn't, they couldn't watch the game without everyone being on their phone, talking about the odds and so on. And again, I'm not judging what people want to do with their lives necessarily, but it is interesting to think that for some people there is now, um, you know, no separation between football and gambling. Um, and I think that's become commonplace now. And it's even, you, you see it in 
the ads. There was, I think it was a Ladbrokes ad. Um, I hope it was Ladbrokes, um, although I don't think this is libelous. Um, that was about this this guy going, oh, I'm a nodder. I look up at the screen, down at my phone, up at the screen, down at my phone. And I was like, I, I couldn't believe that this was meant to be an advert for a product. Like that to me is so depressing. It is, yeah. Yeah, what are they actually saying there? Great, you're going to miss the game. That's, that's how I felt for the last three or four matches I've watched when I've had to actually stop myself picking up my phone by placing it over the other side of the room. It's ridiculous. So this is quite bleak. This is obviously, you know, we've spoken about how insidious it is, how dangerous gambling is. You've mentioned Parliament already. How how do you see this panning out? What do you think is going to happen next? Like, where can we go from here? So um, the government's been reviewing gambling regulation for some time. It's very out of date legislation. It's not that old. Um, gambling Act was uh, completed in 2005 and came into force in 2007. But the thing that happened in between those two dates is the invention of the smartphone, mm-hmm. which has basically changed everything. So this is legislation that was written without the idea that everyone has essentially a casino in their pocket. So they're reviewing it now. There'll be what's called a white paper early next year, which is where the government sets out their proposals. Um, and then at some point, you know, those may be refined. And then at some point, Parliament will vote on it. And all of that will probably happen next year. And then it may be that any reforms they make don't actually come into effect potentially until 2023. I, I don't know how that's going to pan out. But I think it's if you're somebody who wants there to be a crackdown on uh, the regulation of gambling, I think that you're probably going to get what you want by and large. I wouldn't be surprised to see gambling sponsorship banned in football, um, certainly on the front of shirts. But I think it could be more than that. It could be billboards inside the ground as well, because Look, if you're saying that the visibility of gambling is dangerous on shirts, then I don't see how logically you can, you, you know, you can avoid doing the same with uh, billboards around the ground. Um, I think that there could be some um, uh, measures to restrict cross-selling. That's where, uh, you know, you sign up for a football betting account and all of a sudden you're being directed towards casino products as well. Um and, you know, there could be some less headline grabbing stuff that isn't particularly related to football, but there's actually much more important in lots of ways in terms of the way that gambling companies interact with customers. Um, so, yeah, all that is coming up. And I think, you know, for those who want reform, I would I would be quite optimistic about that. Weirdly enough, this government, it, from what I'm told anyway, I'm a Guardian reporter, so maybe my sources at the top of the Tory party are not all they might be. But Boris Johnson has been in the past pretty vocal about um, being concerned about gambling. As mayor of London, he was. And uh, there are people around him and his, his policy team, who I'm told, are uh, very sympathetic to the idea that gambling has, has gone too far in this country. So I, I think that's probably the way we're going. On the other hand, you know, it's the gambling is a £14 billion a year industry. Um, it has politicians on its payroll. Um, it's mm. influential. So, you know, there's it's it's all up in the air at the moment. It's all to play for. That's interesting. I mean, I guess it depends whether the companies are based in tax havens or whether, or whether the government's pocketing much revenue from the uh, the taxation as to whether anything will actually be done. Um, but that, I mean, that is promising. It's, it's great to hear that there's some potential light at the end of the tunnel. Are, are you likely to be consulted on that white paper as someone who's become somewhat of an expert? You know, you've written a book about it. You've reported on it for many years. You should be someone they're speaking to. I, no, uh, is the short answer. I mean, you know, a journalist is only an expert to the extent 
that they need to be to be able to convey some information to people who aren't going to go direct perhaps to the most niche uh, and detailed sources, right? I know a bit about this because I've been writing about it for five years, but um, if I thought the government was consulting people like me, I'd probably be a bit worried. Um, I mean, look, I'd love it if MPs would would read the book when it comes out. And I think there's stuff in there that you won't find anywhere else, that you won't find in the kind of consultations that they do with the industry and, and with other people um, that I'm hoping will be news to a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. It's nice to think that what you do is influential, but mm. I'm not egotistical enough to think that you know, anyone should be listening to me necessarily. Are there are there many other books on the problem of gambling? Uh, there's a few. I mean, what you tend to get is books written by uh, ex-footballers. So Paul Merson has a book. Right. Peter Shilton has a book. Um, as, and I mean, there are some very good books written by academics on this subject, academics who know a lot more than me. Um, but I guess it's been less easy for some of them to write something in a, in, in a way that gets mainstream attention, I suppose. Interesting. Um that's, this is really fascinating. Have you, I'm sure you've come across some sort of really touching personal stories along the way. And you've already mentioned that some of the people you spoke to have have attempted to take their own life or have unfortunately taken their own life. Um, I was sent a, a link from a friend about Luke's Law, which is, so let me just read a bit of blurb from the, the petition that, um, that Luke's partner has, uh, has put up on the um, Parliament website. Uh, my husband developed a gambling addiction. We managed to pay off his gambling debts and he kept his addiction at bay for almost two years. We have two children and he loved his family dearly. During lockdown, he'd been furloughed and whilst I was at work and the children were in school, he was sent a free bet. From that day onwards, he gambled every day and quickly lost control. He took his own life on the 22nd of April, 2021. And uh, the idea behind Luke's law is that that free bets and emails that entice gamblers to place free bets are banned completely and and um and luke's partner is trying to get this discussed in parliament and the idea is that you get as basic just as possible if you get a hundred thousand then there will be a debate about it uh had you heard of luke's law and is this something that's quite common that people trying to sort of get this on their government's agenda yeah i mean i'm aware of his partner annie ashton who's um become a very effective campaigner particularly on twitter but also elsewhere um free bets and um bonuses and so on is definitely something that the government's going to be looking at whether they ban them outright i don't know but i think we'll see some kind of restrictions because one thing that i've certainly come across in almost all of the horror stories like that of luke ashton but also of of lots of other people um one thing they have in common is that people were being pushed free bets free spins bonuses and in some cases vip days out trips to the football trips to the horse racing free stuff you know um cash back on your losses because you make so many losses that they can afford to give you cash back on some of them you know that is has been absolutely rife within the industry and you know call it what it is it's grooming really um and and in some cases it's been pretty clear that the companies could have known that the person they were grooming was an addict but but didn't feel like they needed to stop for whatever reason i think things are better now but I also think that's partly because the industry has seen the writing on the wall. It reminds me, the, the analogy I always use is it's like when my cat gets up on the kitchen table and I, I can shout at it all I like to get off the kitchen table, but it doesn't do it until I start striding towards it with menace in my eyes. And and, and that is kind of how I see some of the measures that the gambling industry has taken to, to crack down on this stuff. So I think government does have to legislate because otherwise we'll come out the other side of this and the industry having 
improved slightly will just start to backslide because all the financial incentives are there to do that. And um, and one thing I want to say, actually, um, that relates to where we're going in the future and I think isn't um, isn't thought about enough is that we don't really know the trouble that we've stored up by um, saturating the game of football with gambling because someone turning 18 this year, right, and able to gamble legally for the first time is really from the very first generation of people to grow up watching football and having gambling rammed down their throat every minute of that experience. So who knows what the effects are going to be on those people and who knows how quickly we're going to be able to change the culture with legislation because you can enact a law next year that cracks down on some of this behavior but you can argue that the damage is already done it's like it's like an oil tanker at sea right you you spin the wheel but it takes a mile before the tanker really starts to turn um and culture is like that too so i do think that um you know we we may have some rocky times ahead certainly for some people who've become um you know completely of the belief that gambling and football cannot be separated uh you know i think there's we're going to have some rocky times ahead for some of those people but i do think we're starting to move in in what i would consider to be the right direction mm, that's fascinating as well i mean yeah the idea that the whole the whole generation has um has spawned now that is it links gambling with football uh, every step of the way uh, and then it might take another generation to move beyond that that's, that's slightly frightening although as, as someone who who wrote about all the uh the sins as you put it um I, I guess you could look at the smoking ban in in pubs and sort of take some possible optimism from how that quickly changed behaviors and uh, and maybe if something as radical as that happens in the gambling industry maybe maybe it can make a dent at least yeah, it's possible, but I think also the kind of financial structures that exist to keep gambling in football right. are much stronger, um, you know, than than was in place for the for the tobacco industry. I'm not saying the tobacco industry, you know, didn't have huge amounts of money and 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 you know wasn't influential in lobbying and so on, but you know the way that gambling and football are kind of so tightly knit together, um, it's going to be mm-hmm. very difficult to unpick that. Uh, and, and I think if you are going to do that, you're going to have to accept that there could be consequences. I mean, in the championship, for instance, clubs are really, really reliant on the money that comes in from gambling. And we all know how precarious the financial situation of some of those clubs is. If you're top six, if you're Tottenham, well, uh, wannabe top six, if you're Tottenham, Manchester United and so on, you can get other sponsors, right? You'll notice that none of the top six have uh, gambling companies on their shirts because there are bigger, uh, badder brands out there that can afford to advertise with them. But for the EFL or championship, whatever you want to call it, it's a much bigger deal. So if you're going to take away that gambling money, something's going to have to replace it. Now, there's no shortage of money in football. I think we can all agree that. So the question is, how do you distribute it more equitably? And I think if if, if gambling money is going to be taken away, you're probably going to have to think about how much of that money is trickling down from the Premier League uh, to, to the rest of the 92 and, and, and beyond. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be naive about the fact that taking that gambling money away um, will cause problems. Mm-hmm. So that's something that ministers are, are definitely going to have to consider. Yeah, I mean, but it's timely, isn't it, with the the review of football governance that Tracy Crouch has been leading? I mean, perhaps that might need to factor in any potential changes that they make to the regulation of the gambling industry around football. Uh, it's do it's all doable stuff, isn't it? Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the top six and. Uh, 
as, as a sort of cut-off point, um, because Spurs, when they weren't top six, of course, had mentioned as their sponsor, which is not that long ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's a really another interesting area that we haven't really touched upon. And, is, you know, could be a whole book in itself. And I haven't gone into it hugely in the book. But the way that most or so many of the betting firms that are advertising on football shirts in in, um, in the UK or in England um, are Asian betting companies primarily that don't really have any customers um, in in this country uh, or in or in U- the UK. And the reason they do that is because they're banned from advertising in their home country. So uh-huh. they advertise in the Premier League and immediately you're reaching an audience of billions across, well, it's mainly China, but also Thailand and other places where, where betting is banned. So they sort of circumvented um, the the prohibitions that exist in their in their home countries, and I think often that means that they don't necessarily have the best interests of English football um, at heart, and they don't necessarily have any interest in the best interests of disordered gamblers. Um, so I think that's one area. I think we're going to see the back of that, to be honest, um, for definite gambling sponsorship overall. Not quite sure, but I'd be surprised if you see all of those sort of completely. Uh, esoteric brands that none of us have, have ever really encountered sponsoring football uh, for too much longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've used the phrase disordered gamblers a couple of times. What, what do you mean by that phrase? So the reason I use that, I mean, earlier on, I corrected myself when I referred to somebody committing suicide because, you know, that language comes from when suicide was a crime. So it was mm-hmm. committed, right? And, and, and you know, that was an accident of indoctrination on my part. And, and I prefer to use a different phrase. The same thing is going on when I say disordered gamblers. Uh, the, the phrase that gets used in clinical circles and quite often in the media and elsewhere is problem gamblers. And the issue I have with that is that it casts the problem as the person. And it, it suggests that it's, you know, your lack of ability to control yourself and your inability to be responsible. And, you know, that's not it's not to say that gambling addicts don't consider personal responsibility in their recovery. They definitely do. Um, but. I think when we use that language, we are kind of letting the industry off the hook. We don't mm-hmm. talk about problem products. Um, so if we talk about problem gamblers, you know, I still do it sometimes and I, I occasionally have to catch myself. Disordered gambler, you could say gambling addict. Um, but, you know, we are talking about a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, you, I don't, you might talk about a problem drinker, but I think it, it jars in a way that problem gambler um, doesn't necessarily. And I think that's, that's probably something we need to address. Mm. That's really useful. Uh, a couple of things as you've been speaking have just occurred to me. Firstly, um, I'm interested to know whether your own behaviour around gambling has changed as a result of your research and writing. Um, it's a weird one. I, I've, I've, I've got quite an addictive personality, right? And I've been addicted to, uh, you know, I used to be a cigarette smoker. I probably drink a bit too much. Um, you know, you could throw some other things into the mix, but I probably wouldn't want to get into it, get into it here. Um, but gambling has just never appealed to me because the whole equation, I don't get the buzz from actually doing it. And I know that in the long run, I'm going to lose money. So it's not a way of making money and I don't really enjoy it. So there's, there's really nothing in it for me. But since writing about it, I've kind of had to do it so that I know a bit more what I'm talking about and so that I've seen the products in action and so on. So, it, you know, the, the way in which it's influenced my behavior, I've, I've gambled, whereas previously I never did. Um, but, you know, I'm really, really lucky in that it isn't something that I've felt any urge to go back to. I just... You know, for whatever reason, that, that I just don't get the buzz. I understand that people do, mm-hmm. but it's um, it's not for me. I mean, there's pure luck, isn't it? It's luck of the draw as to whether you're going to you find it addictive or not. Well, um, yeah, no, totally. But in terms of whether it's pure luck as to you know whether you you win or not, not entirely. Mm-hmm. There are people who can pick a horse, mm-hmm. for instance, 
Um, and there are people, I used to know a guy who was a mathematician, and he said he just he just bet against England at every major tournament because he knew the odds were skewed by people optimistically betting um, in England's favour. You know, there are ways to make money from gambling, but what you'll, you'll find will happen is the gambling company will very quickly shut you down because they have no legal obligation to serve you. Mm-hmm. So if a gambling company sees that you're winning regularly, chances are the amount you can bet will be dialed down and down and down and down until there's basically no point. So, um, you know, even once we get beyond issues of addiction and so on, um, you know, the house always wins. That's the point. It's stacked so heavily against you in every possible way. Um, the other thing I'm interested in is whether, I'm assuming there has been, has, has there been lots of pushback from the industry uh, to, to your reports and to your to the the news that you've you're putting this book out uh the book not so much i think because they don't know what's in it yet um so they're probably keeping their powder powder dry i definitely get a lot of grief from some people in the industry i think there's lots of others actually who sometimes pick me up on stuff when i've got when i've got it wrong but generally are quite supportive of the idea that the industry um has gone too far particularly when you think that a lot of people at the top of gambling companies are not really gambling people Mm-hmm. They're executives. They're people who know how to make money. They're boardroom guys. And you know, if you're a massive horse racing fan or something, you've got no love for virtual slot machines, really. Um, so I think there are some sort of supportive voices within the, within the industry. But yeah, I, I get a lot of stick on Twitter, and I know you'll be familiar with that. Um, it, it's hard to deal with sometimes. Um, and also, this is an industry that's got quite a lot of power. I mean, they have, they literally have politicians who are on the payroll of gambling companies as we're in the middle of a gambling review, um, you know, and they take them out to football matches. And we had earlier this year, there was an MP who spoke in Parliament um, warning about the dangers of gambling regulation. And a couple of hours after he made that speech, you know, he put on his coat and went out to, to Wembley to watch England, Denmark, courtesy of uh, Entain, which is the company that owns Ladbrokes. So, you know, there's this idea that there's a powerful anti-gambling lobby with people like me and MPs and various other people like that. Actually, most of those people are not anti-gambling. They just want it to be safer. But it's kind of a joke when you consider the power that exists on the other side. And if anyone's listening to this and they, they, they're they sort of identifying that perhaps their gambling has become disordered, uh, within sort of your research, have you picked up ways that people can take themselves out of their addiction? Um, any tips on how to sort of try to, to stop it before it gets out of control? Uh, I mean, this is dangerous territory for me to get into in a way, but I can I can talk about the kind of services that exist. Um, but, you know, I, I, I find it difficult to give advice to people, I suppose, because um, I'm not really qualified to do sure. that. The National Gambling Helpline is a good place to start. Um, I don't have the number to hand, but it might be something you could put in the show notes or, for sure. or edit in afterwards. Um, Gamblers Anonymous, I found a lot of people have said, uh, has been very helpful to them. There's also now um, various kind of software solutions. So, you can use there's there's one called bet blocker which is free there's one called gamban which uh, i think there's a subscription for you can put those on your laptop or your phone and it will essentially prevent you from accessing um gambling websites and then there's also gamstop which is the kind of industry-wide self-exclusion scheme where you can go on there and say i don't want to bet with any of these companies and then the companies are supposed to stop you betting it doesn't always work but it's it's quite effective um and that kind of friction um it isn't necessarily a cure but it's quite a good prevention you know taking away your opportunity to bet sometimes means that you know you don't get into that spiral that could be the one that you know financially ruins you or or or, um really impacts your mental health so things like that um and there's also now nhs funded problem gambling clinics 
or excuse me, gambling addiction clinics um, that, um, you know, can't treat as many people as I'm sure they would like to, but that are up and running. And there's more money being spent on that now. Uh, thank goodness, long overdue. Um, so, yeah, we're getting there slowly with the treatment. Um, what are your hopes with the book, Rob? Are you are you are you hoping to achieve something from it, or is it just a case of just be get it seen and read by as many people as possible? Yeah, I think look, just get as many people reading it as I can, and you know, obviously that benefits me financially. But nobody writes a book like this to make money. Um, I, I've had that accusation from people in the industry, right? <laughs> You're cashing in on this, but uh, I can tell you now, they're not big money spinners, and they take a lot of work. Um, but yeah, just I, I would like people to read it and for it to be useful to them in their lives if they know somebody um, who they think is gambling too much or if it's happening to them as well. Um, I'd like them to read those stories uh, that are in there, uh, read about how we got here. And, you know, hopefully it'll it'll stop someone from doing something that damages them or, or other people. I think that's the, the main aim. Um, and if it could have some influence uh, among, you know, the people who make our laws, uh, that would be great as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Bardi is going to add it to his list for Bardi's book club, which he does. And, and we'd love to have you back on once he's read the book so that uh, he can talk, talk to you a bit more in a bit more detail. And uh, perhaps we can get some listener questions in who, from people who've, who've read along with him as well. Um, but uh, it's, it's so fascinating to talk to you about this. Uh, it's something that's become closer to my heart over the years. And I, I was certainly guilty in, in the last few years of, of writing for for gambling websites i didn't realize the damage that um that the link between football articles and news and the, the gambling websites was doing and, and i feel very i feel like i was just very naive and i didn't i just didn't think it through it, was, it seemed like such an obvious step for me to basically what would happen was Betfair, Paddy Power, whoever it was, they would contact you and say, are you interested in writing a few football articles? And I'd be like, of course, yeah, sure thing. And I get paid, you know, 50, 60, 70 quid a time, not not big money. Um, and before you know it, I, I, I'm doing a column for, for, for Betfair. And I think back now and I, I just sort of feel slightly ashamed of that. Um, no, um, man, I mean, don't, don't feel that way because you're not the only person who didn't appreciate um, how how serious a problem gambling addiction can be because it's, it hasn't been taken seriously for years and years and years. And it's unlike alcohol addiction or drug addiction. You can have a friend uh, who is suffering really badly and it's going to be invisible. You can tell when someone's drunk or intoxicated. You can't tell. Somebody could be sitting next to you on the sofa, uh, driving themselves to financial ruin and despair, and you're never going to know with gambling. So some people call it the hidden addiction. There's some debate around that uh, that I won't get into. But, you know, there's reason for that. And you're not the only person by any means who, who didn't see it. Uh, and that's exactly what happened to 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 someone who's become a friend. Um, that exact thing. No one realized what he was going through until it became too late and things got really bad for him. And I just dread to think that there are there are others out there with their mates in the same situation. And I would just say, for goodness sake, talk to, talk, if you've got any inclination that you you might be addicted to gambling for goodness sake talk to your friends talk to someone you can't move forward until you've spoken to someone about it and um and made the step in the right direction it's it's so tough though and it must be so difficult once you sort of the shame the shame of it all because whilst gambling is seen as uh, frivolous and fun by by the casual football fan gambling addiction is seen as something that other that other people have you know um and that must be a really difficult thing to confront and and, and that financial element of it is so important 
because obviously you can you know you can ruin yourself financially with with other types of addiction but gambling addiction almost always uh, leads to that that end point right and and that means lots of other people are affected and it means that the rest of your life is on a different trajectory to the one it would have been otherwise um so yeah i do think you know anyone who's listening to this who does think they have a problem with gambling should should definitely look into one of those services that i mentioned i think it's also worth going and having a look at a campaign called the big step um which is run by a guy called james grimes who's a a recovering gambling addict himself and it goes around the country trying to convince football clubs to cut ties with gambling and some of them have done that and, and taken a real stand clubs like tranmere uh clubs like swansea um and there's, there's one or two others um have shown that it can be done um so that's you know that is the model i think for for how we move to a slightly different place if indeed that's what we as a society want i really appreciate the 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 conversation um looking forward to reading the book where where will people where should people pre-order it from so uh it's called jackpot how gambling conquered britain you can get it from uh you know bookshops like waterstones you can get it from the guardian bookshop um if you google it you will find it you can also get it from a very well-known website that perhaps hasn't always paid as much tax as it should but um i, I would start with guardian bookshop um i'm sure my bosses would want me to say <laughs> nice one cheers rob really appreciate it and uh, and hopefully uh, you'll be uh, a willing participant of Bardi's book club in the future absolutely can't wait you've been listening to the extra inch thanks to nathan a clark for production thanks to Bardi for being italian thanks to adam gardner for the artwork thanks to david lindmer for our intro music you can find him on twitter at davy shambles and his soundcloud e lindmer do check him out he's great, great, great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.